0: It is April 23rd. It's Sunday morning. And our message is God's fire. And uh, Judah Benjamin Stevens is going to read us a scripture. It comes from Luke, the 13th chapter, and the 49th verse. And he's going to read down through 51. There you go, son. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and I wish it were already kindled. But I have a Baptist, um to... Un- Undergrowth, and how distressed I am until it is complete. Do you think I came to bring peace on the earth? No, I tell you. But division from now on the earth be five and one family divided against each other. You did good. Okay, saints, y'all open your Bibles. They weren't already open till Luke. Did you hear the Scripture that Judah read? Jesus said that He came to bring fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled, but I have a baptism to undergo. Do you think I came to bring peace? No, but rather division. Five against three, and He goes on to explain the kind of division that would be there. That is one of the stranger statements in the Bible. When you read your books on Bible difficulties and commentaries... On the verse, that's one that you'll hear a variety of things about because, frankly, people just don't know what to do with it. How can Jesus wish that fire were kindled on the earth already? And what was his baptism that he had to undergo? Uh, truthfully, I hadn't planned to talk about that verse at all, but it came to me during worship, and I thought it'd be good that Judah read it. After we get through talking about the fire of the Lord this morning, I think you'll understand what Jesus was talking about. Fire of the Lord is a unique thing in the Bible. You know, in the ancient world, there probably was not anything that was more powerful than fire. You know, it was both the most destructive force that you could have, and it was also a source that sustained life. You know, when you're cold, fire is a pretty good thing, isn't it? When you want to eat food, fire is a pretty good thing, isn't it? But when you go to war, what could be more destructive than fire? You know, they say that Greek fire changed the scape of warfare. That they had a fire that was made out of things that when you poured water on it, it only caused it to increase. How awesome was that? Can you imagine going to battle knowing that somebody could put fire that you couldn't put out? Period. A fire that couldn't be quenched? An unquenchable, consuming fire? What an awesome, powerful thing. In the ancient world, fire was the atomic bomb of their day. Doesn't that make sense to you? Well, turn with me to Exodus three. And we got a small group this morning, so y'all are gonna to have to stick with me. In Exodus three, we hear the call of Moses. And starting in the second verse, you see there, uh, y'all's pages are still turning, so I'll wait. You there? You see, in Exodus 3, verse 2, there the angel of Yahweh, or the Lord, appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. When Moses was feeling a call to the Lord, when the Lord wanted to appear to Moses in a way that caught his attention, he chose fire. And he chose fire for a reason. You know, there was fire only one time prior to this mentioned in all of the Bible. It's quite a statement, huh? We've got all of the chapters of Genesis and it's only mentioned one other time. It's when Abraham carried the fire in the night to kill his son. Peculiar events fire shows up at in the Bible. But when God wants to reveal Himself to Moses, He reveals Himself in a fire that doesn't consume the bush that it's burning in. God didn't need any fuel for His fire. He's fire all by Himself. God didn't need anything else to help him exist. He was there all by himself. But all in all, what this is, is a supernatural fire. On the day that Moses was called the man who would bring God's righteous instruction to the earth through the law, God was revealed to him as a fire and a supernatural fire. Flip a few pages. Go to Exodus 13. See if we begin to see a pattern here. You know, if you want to better understand the newer covenant... If you want to better understand the words of Jesus and the teaching of the apostles, the best way that I know to do that is to get a better grasp on the older covenant which they so adequately understood. The reason that we don't understand most of the prophecy that is given to us, the reason that we have difficulty with Jesus' words or Paul's words at times is one reason only. We've neglected to bury ourselves, to submerge ourselves in the 39 books of the Older Covenant that was the only Bible the church had for nearly 200 years. For nearly 200 years, that was the only Bible the church had. All various areas had uh, circulations of handwritten letters from the apostles. But the book that they all leaned on, the book that formed the foundation for Revelation, and the book that they judged the letters that were being circulated by, was the Older Testament called the Tanakh. That makes a difference. When we begin to understand that, the words of Jesus come to life. When we begin to understand that, all of a sudden even the New Testament imagery begins to look clearer. In Exodus 13, y'all are there by now? Verse 20, By day, Yahweh went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place from in front of the people. When God appeared to Moses, He appeared as supernatural fire. When God led Israel for 40 years in the desert, He appeared before them both day and night as fire. During the day, it looked like a cloud of fire and at night, it looked like a pillar of fire. But it was fire both day and night. In Exodus 19, you ought to flip a few more pages. The day that the law is given. The day that Israel is given the charge that they would be priests, a kingdom of priests from the Most High God. In chapter 19, verse 16, we see, Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because Yahweh descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. Why did God descend upon the mountain in fire? Why do we consistently see the imagery of God throughout the Older Testament as a God that is a consuming fire? This was the most powerful substance that man was acquainted with. This was a visual image that they would never forget. Indeed, for 1,600 years when they described God or wanted to associate God's presence with them, they described Him as a raging, burning fire. Now, some of you that have experienced a Pentecostal experience, your minds may already be jumping forward several hundred years, even nearly 2,000 years, to a time period where God's holy fire once again answered men's cries. But if you don't understand the previous 1,600 years, you may miss the significance of fire falling on a day of Pentecost. People have argued the paintings through the Middle Ages have showed weak, emaciated, effeminate men with great big eyes and tiny little mouths and dainty little hands and little candles flickering over their head. This was not the imagery that the Jews had in mind of God's fire. This is not what the Jews were looking for. And it was not what God did on the day of Pentecost. We would totally miss the significance if we saw it in that way. Moving on from Exodus 19, looking at Exodus 24. You like that? I put these in chronological order for you. Not really chronological, but in the order of your books. In Exodus, I do that when I have 10 pages of scriptures I want to cover. <laughs> In Exodus 24, verse 15, "...when Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain." Is there any doubt in your mind that the Israelites associated the glory of the Lord with fire? There should be no doubt at this point. This was not enough though. Israel had several structures in ancient Israel that were said to be temporary dwellings for God because this whole human drama began with man walking with God in a garden. And the problem was man became estranged from God and that he was thrown out of a garden. So throughout this restorative relationship where Israel is portraying the revelation of God on earth, what we see is God dwelling with them in some way. Because the point and goal of this book is to show man how to become a suitable dwelling for God. To show man how he can again dwell with God on the earth. Not in heaven, not in some faraway place, but on the earth where man was put to rule and reign with God as an agent of God. That's so why the book starts in a garden and the Newer Testament finishes in a garden. That wouldn't make very much sense, the 20th and 21st chapter of Revelation, if you didn't have a Genesis, would it? We have one contiguous revelation from the beginning to the end. And the imagery is consistent. The allegory is consistent. The symbols are consistent because God is trying to make Himself abundantly clear so that it can't be missed. Saints, He took an entire nation and use them as an object lesson so that the history books couldn't even miss it. That's amazing. He didn't just choose one or two select people. He chose an entire nation and shaped and formed their culture so that they would display His glorious wonders whether they wanted to or not. That's powerful. That's a great big God, isn't it? What was the first dwelling on earth, a temporary dwelling, that God was said to dwell in? Y'all can answer me this morning. A tent, a tabernacle. We call it Moses' tabernacle. What did they do with it? They took it down and set it up in the wilderness, right? Everywhere they went, they set this up with them. They had a tabernacle where there were offerings that were given. They had another tabernacle called the tent of meeting. It was basically Moses' tent. Joshua, son of Nun, hung out there sometimes even after Moses went to bed because he wanted to be in the presence of God. It's amazing how God will shape and form a leader, huh? In Leviticus 9, that's where you should be going. You see something powerful happen. This tent, the apostles pick up on later. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul calls your body a tent. Where did he get that terminology? Why did he use it? He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. The man was learned in the Scripture. By the age of five, had the first five books of the Bible memorized. Somewhere before the age of 13, had 39 other books of the Bible memorized. And he was just one of thousands of Jews that had committed themselves to this kind of life. But he excelled beyond them all because his zeal was unparalleled. What a perfect guy to write the Newer Testament, don't you think? Somebody perfectly founded in the older, adequately able to put anybody with a misunderstanding of the law in their place. And he did a good job. Most of his epistles focus on that. Yell in Leviticus 9? In Leviticus 9, verse 23, Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people, and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. Why did they shout for joy? Why did they fall face down? Because God was showing that He approved of what they were doing. Because God was showing up in a visible, powerful way. And friends, what was the visible, powerful way? Fire. Fire, the most destructive and constructive force in all of the ancient world, was what God chose to be symbolic of His presence. Keep turning to the right in your Bible. Get to Numbers 14. Are you all thinking, Lord have mercy, are we going to read every fire Scripture in the Bible this morning? I want you to know there are 359 of them that mention fire specifically, and most of them mention it more than once. So we'll only read half of them. In Numbers 14, verse 13, Moses said to Yahweh, you remember this? God's angry. He's thinking of smiting the people. Moses said to Yahweh, then the Egyptians will hear about it. By Your power, You brought these people up from among them. And they will tell the inhabitants of the land about it. They have already heard that You, O Lord, are with these people, and that You, O Lord, have been seen face to face, that Your cloud stays over them, and that You go before them in a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. If You put these people to death all at one time, the nations who have heard this report about you will say, the Lord was not able to bring these people into the land. He promised them on oath, so He slaughtered them in the desert. Do you understand what Moses is concerned about? God has a solution for the problem. I'm going to kill these people. They don't have the faith that I would like them to have. They consistently rebel are stiff necked Are they deserving of death? Absolutely. Just like you were. But Moses, the man chosen as an intercessor for the people, the man chosen to lay his hand upon God and to lay his hand upon them, the forerunner of Christ intercedes for them. And he says, you need to understand, God. That's a powerful thing, huh? Can you imagine being a man and suggesting a different or alternative course for God? You have to be really called to intercessory prayer to do that, don't you? He says, you need to understand, God. God. It's not just that the Egyptians and everybody else has heard about you. It's not just that they heard the report of what happened. They've literally seen you with them in the desert. And after seeing God with his people, if all those people drop dead, what will they say about you, God? It was not just for Israel that the fire appeared. You find out from reading the Torah that all of the nations were watching God's fire go with the people. All of the nations of the world surrounding Jerusalem were watching that God was present with His people. Deuteronomy 5 teaches us that this is so that the whole world would see how Israel observed the law, how God was with them as no other nation had a God with them, and it would declare the wondrous glories of God to the world through Israel. For those that have such a negative view of the law understand that spoken about the way they would carry out the law. The fire was not just for Israel. It was for the whole world to see. You might even say that it was a sign. Signs do two things to people. Some that obey them, that see them, that are instructed by them, are benefited by them. When you stop at a stop sign, you have free will. You can stop or you can go. But there could be great benefit in stopping at the sign, couldn't there? Still a sign for somebody that speeds right through it and gets hit by a train though, isn't it? When the Bible speaks of the gifts in the New Testament, which stemmed from a glorious appearing in fire, it says that they are a sign. Signs do two things for people. That reaction's always been the same. Let me read you a Scripture out of Deuteronomy 5. You don't have to go there. It's another fire Scripture. It was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive today. I want you to get that. This is after... 40 years in the desert. What happened during the 40 years in the desert? I just told you God was going to cause them all to drop dead. And Moses said, let's do it little by little. How many Israelites were alive the day they went into the promised land that had been alive the day they were on Mount Sinai? Two. Who were they? Joshua and Caleb. Three, Moses. There were three people total that were alive the day the law was given that went into the promised land. Now, standing just outside the Promised Land, the book of Deuteronomy declares it was not with our fathers that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, all of us who are alive today. Nothing could really be further from the truth, could it? The covenant had not been given to these people. It, in fact, had been given to their fathers who died and their bodies were scattered in the desert. So what on earth does this mean? This is a very Jewish way of looking at the Word of God. We need to learn to do it, too. Because the covenant was given to their fathers, it was just as if it had been given to them. They don't read that the ancient Israelites came out of Egypt. When they read it today, they read that we came out of Egypt. They don't read that an ancient Israelite did this or that. They read it in the first person as I did it. In fact, even when the Ten Commandments were given... What's the very first of the Ten Commandments? Come on, saints. Y'all can talk to me. You shall... When these words are given, He didn't say y'all like He was from the South. He didn't say you guys like He was from the North. What did He say? You. Very personal. Given to each and every Israelite because this word is for you. You. You Gentile graft into Israel. It was personal. That's why when they're standing outside the Promised Land, they're saying it's not as if this covenant was given to our fathers and didn't work. It's just like it was given to us this day. Because the Word for them was living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. And their God was the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's where the New Testament writers get the idea. In any case, the rest of Deuteronomy 5 says, "...the Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. And at that time I," this speaking of Moses, "...stood between the Lord and you to declare the word of the Lord because you were afraid of the fire and did not go up to the mountain." This fire represents God's presence and God's presence causes two reactions in people. One is a drawing, a love, an awe because you know this is your Maker. And another is a feeling of unworthiness and fear, because you know that you're not right to be with your Maker. This is at least before Jesus had credited the believers with righteousness. They cried out for something that day. Do you remember what they cried out for? Moses, Moses, somebody has to intercede for us. It's not good that we hear the voice of God and see His fire. If there was somebody to make intercession, you go, Moses. You go. Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, what you said was good that day. God is going to raise up a prophet like me. You listen to every word that comes out of His mouth or you will be cut off from the people of God. In the first chapter of John, some of the apostles, then disciples, actually then brothers, not even disciples, said, we have found Him. We found the one Moses spoke about. The prophet. The one who would see God face to face. The one who would behold God's fire. They would speak to the people for God and to God for the people. What a powerful thing. You think of these as New Testament themes. They're not. They're not at all. Israel still has these hopes. In First Kings, you have the familiar story of Elijah. He says, The God who answers by fire, He is God. Where did Elijah get that idea? Because as his nation was founded, as they learned to walk with God quite literally, being told that their sandals would not wear out, they followed God's presence in fire. There should be no doubt in anyone's mind at this point that they saw God as fire. David cried out to God in First Chronicles 21. You don't have to turn there. You can write it down if you take notes. There was a plague because of David's sin that had come upon Jerusalem. And in First Chronicles twenty-one verse twenty-five it says, "So David paid Aruna six hundred shekels of gold for the site. He was buying the threshing floor, a place where you thresh wheat. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on Yahweh and Yahweh answered him with fire from heaven." on the altar and burnt up the offering. When God wanted to show that something was pleasing to him, when God wanted to show that sin had been remitted in this case, that his presence could dwell because he had found a right heart, though there was great sin in David's case, he had slept with a woman that was not his wife, he had killed a man, murdered him because he wanted his wife, and a plague had broken out upon the people. But when God wanted to show that the sin was being taken care of, that God's presence could in fact dwell with David, He showed up in fire and received his offering. I would say that's powerful imagery, wouldn't you? In fact, David's tabernacle is said to have had sides on it. It was put on the temp on the uh, Mount Zion, and the sides of the temple were rolled up so that people could see something. You know what the nations were supposed to see as they went by Mount Zion? They were supposed to see the glory of the Lord within the temple. Now, what did I read you earlier? To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like fire. So what do you think the nations were seeing? Well, when the Israelites followed Moses, they saw Israel following a cloud of fire. When David set up a tent on top of Mount Zion that we call David's tabernacle, A time period where God's presence would be inside of a tent. And joyous, worshipful warfare would be going on as Israel subdued the nations. This sounds a lot like the church age, doesn't it? The nations would go by and they would see the sides of the tent rolled up and they would say, there is a God in Israel. We can see Him. He is a consuming fire. The most constructive and the most destructive force known to ancient man. This left it irrefutable that God's presence was with Israel. But there was a third structure in Israel. After we went from a wandering tabernacle in the wilderness, and after David took that tabernacle and put it on a mountain for the nations to see, came time for a permanent dwelling for God. David wasn't allowed to build it because he was a man of warfare. And God wanted the world to know that His permanent dwelling with man would come under a king of peace ushered in in a time of peace. This is the golden age in Israel. It's Solomon's era. And it's Solomon's temple. I want you to get something real quick because I don't have time to teach on it. David warred with the nations. God gave him victory wherever he went. The people that were loyal to David were the true Israelites, the princes with God. And out of David's warfare came plunder from the nations. And the plunder from the nations was used during a time of peace to build the temple that would be God's permanent dwelling. say, well, Eric, why on earth would you pause and go over that? You, sitting in this building, are the plunder from Jesus' warfare with the gods of this earth. He is laying waste to them on the left and on the right. And as their kingdoms fall from your life, you show yourself to be a building block for God's temple. And in the age of peace to come, under the King of Peace... You personally will be a stone built into a house for the living God, and He will dwell with you forever. Israel's very culture teaches us about the deep things of God. Israel's very book, the Tanakh, teaches us what the apostles commented on. We have an obligation to learn it, to love it, and to live it. In Second Chronicles, the seventh chapter, you hear Solomon read these words. When Solomon finished praying. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled it. Have you ever tried to get too close to a fire? I watched Brother Brad flipping shish kebabs at Craig's house. Very good shish kebabs, by the way, Craig. He wanted to flip them. He wanted to flip them all pretty quickly because we knew that they were going to burn if left too long. The problem is the closer His hand got to the fire, the less He wanted to keep His hand in the fire. God is often like this. The closer we get to Him, the more it hurts the flesh because you realize you're just not suited in and of yourself to be in God's presence. But Jesus has made us confident and He has made us suitable and He has declared us righteous based on what He did, you're now built to dwell in the fire, to even be a house for the fire. The priests couldn't enter. So they knelt on the pavement with their faces to the ground. They worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good. His love endures forever. The reaction at the tabernacle of Moses, the reaction at the David's tabernacle, and the reaction at the temple are all the same the people equated God's fire with the presence of God. And they said, it's good! And they were excited. Some fell down while others stood up and worshipped. Not unlike our charismatic and Pentecostal worship services today. The reaction was always good because they always saw it as God. The presence of the Lord is in fire. And because His presence was always associated with fire, His people began to be associated with fire. When the book of Hebrews quotes a Scripture that says He causes the wind to be His servants and His messengers to be flames of fire, it sounds like poetic language to us. But when encapsulated in the rest of the Old Testament as a quote from Psalm 104, it makes very good sense. Listen to this. Psalm 104, verse 1. Praise the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. He wraps Himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of His upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds His chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes His messengers flames of fire. His servants. If you're going to be associated with God, if you're going to be His servant, whether that speaks of an angel or a man as His servant, you're going to be associated with His fire. Because it's His presence in you that gives you the right to be an ambassador for Him. It's His presence in you that can be the most constructive thing on the earth or the most destructive thing. A man named Elijah stood on a mountain while fifty men and the captain of a guard came. Elijah said, If I be a man of God, let fire come down and consume these fifty men. And you know what happened? Fifty men died that day. He repeated this process several times so that they would know it wasn't a fluke. That's a destructive thing for them, huh? His servants are flames of fire. Even His city... Jerusalem and Zion are associated with fire because God's presence is said to be there. Listen to Isaiah 31, verse 8. Assyria will fall by the sword that is not of man. A sword not of mortals will devour them. They will flee before the Lord, and their young men will be put to forced labor. Their stronghold will fall because of terror. At the sight of the battle standard, their commanders will panic, declares Yahweh whose fire is in Zion, whose furnace is in Jerusalem. Sinnesherab had surrounded Jerusalem. He had said that he was going to make the leaders in Israel eat their own excrement. What a nice thing to say, right? I would say he was pretty confident. He shouted out to them, Whose God has ever saved them from My hand? Did the nation of such and such with the God of such and such Did He deliver them out of My hand? Neither will your God deliver you. But God said that His fire was inside the walls of Jerusalem and He would make it like a furnace. And God sent one of His messengers a flame of fire. One angel. He ran through Sennacherib's camp and killed 185,000 men in a single evening. I would say that was a bad day for Sennacherib. You know what he did? He took his bowl and went home ran back to the temple of his God where he was cut down by his two sons. God's presence was always symbolized by fire. Jeremiah, I love Jeremiah, speaking of the divine moving of the Holy Spirit within him, speaking of the way that he felt when the Spirit of God moved on him and shook him. That's yeah, freezing to death in here, isn't it, Matt? We need God's fire. We installed the new air conditioner. And it works. (laughs) Just raise that temperature to about 75. 60 is too low for me. No, no, it'd be fine. Jeremiah 20, verse 9. This is Jeremiah speaking of the divine moving of the Spirit. But if I say, I will not mention Him or speak any more in His name, His Word is in my heart like a fire. A fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I hear many whispering, terror on every side. Report Him! Let's report Him! All my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying, perhaps He will be deceived. Then we will prevail over Him and take refuge on Him. But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior. So my persecutors will stumble and will not prevail. Jeremiah said God's word within him was like fire shut up in his bones, that there are times that he would try to restrain it, because all of his friends were around him, hoping for one thing, that he was wrong. Jeremiah took an unyielding stand. One time they threw him in a pit of miry clay. He sunk, they say, race down into clay, unable to move. You know why? because they didn't like the words coming out of his mouth. But he said, Woe to me if I don't say what God tells me to say, because he's like a fire shut up in my bones. Let us just think for a minute. If I lit your chairs on fire, you'd have to get off the chair, wouldn't you? Jeremiah saying his word was like fire in his bones meant he had to let it out. He just couldn't hold it in. God was like fire on the inside of Jeremiah. That's powerful, isn't it? What was that fire lit in him for? To get him to speak God's Word. I'm just curious. Do you remember why Jesus said they were to go to Jerusalem and wait? Do you remember what He said? Because dunamos Greek, power will come upon you and you will be My witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now I know, we love to talk about speaking in tongues which is a great thing. We love to talk about prophecy which is a better thing. We love to talk about the miracles which is awesome. Jeremiah had fire shut up in his bones for a reason so that he could not help but tell. And Jesus spoke of you receiving power from on high for a reason so that you could not help but tell Jeremiah 23:29 God is speaking to Jeremiah. He says, "Jeremiah, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces?" <laughs> How often is Jesus spoken of as something that breaks things into pieces? In the book of Daniel, he was said to be a stone cut out of a mountain. If you stumbled on it, that was one thing. But if it fell on you, you were crushed to pieces. A constructive and destructive force is God's presence. Daniel 7, verse 9, speaks one last time about God's fire and then I'm going to move on. It says, As I looked, thrones were set in place. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. We sang about that this morning. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. Do you recognize these words from somewhere other than the book of Daniel? Who else saw this vision? John. The wording's not unfamiliar to John, is it? Because he was well-grounded, well-acquainted, and had an adequate knowledge of the Tanakh. His throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before Him. Thousands upon thousands attended Him. Ten thousand, time ten thousand, stood before Him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Speaking of a vision of God's throne, He speaks of it covered in fire and pouring out fire everywhere the most constructive and destructive force on the planet. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. Let's look at some destructive force that has come from God's fire. You remember in Leviticus 9, we had God's fire filling Moses' tabernacle. Do you remember that? Well, you only have to go about three verses into Leviticus 10, and you see the very same fire that was God's presence that caused the people to dance with joy and sing and be excited kills two men, Nadab and Abihu. Leviticus 10, verse 1, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, put fire in them, and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to His command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before Yahweh. Moses then said to Aaron, This is what the Lord spoke of when He said... Among those who approach Me, I will show Myself holy. In the sight of all the people, I will be honored. You find out that God's presence didn't just bring good, warm feelings. It also brought condemnation to some. The same power that acquitted some condemned others. In Numbers 11, starting in verse 1, it says, "...now the people complained." I want you to hear that, saints. That's worth waking up for. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. <clears throat> I said, now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. Next time you find yourself complaining, I want you to remember that you are in the hearing of the Lord and then think, meditate very hard on these next words. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Complaining doesn't just make your spouse angry, it makes God angry. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Tibera because fire from the Lord burned among them. We see a consistent pattern in Moses' life. Judgment falling on people, Moses interceding for them, and the judgment ceasing or stopping. This is why Jesus was a prophet like Moses. Judgment. The world stood condemned already, but in Christ there is no condemnation. Moses paved the way for Jesus. Of course, it was Jesus in Moses, wasn't it? Psalm 97, verse 1. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. Let the distant shores rejoice. Isn't that nice? Sounds like something good, doesn't it? Everybody's going to rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround Him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of His throne. Fire goes before Him and consumes His foes on every side. We begin to see a picture of the coming of the Lord being joyous for some and condemning for others. Depends on which side you're on. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim His righteousness to all the people who see His glory. I want to read one more Scripture out of Isaiah just because you need to hear this wording. You remember Luke said that the fire looked like something on the day of Pentecost? What did he say it looked like? Tongues. Tongues! We see that and we think the little member between your teeth, right? Tongues of fire. That's how all the artists have depicted it. Surely they must be right. Oh, they were homosexuals that were working for the church at Rome. Oh, I'm sure because they worked for the church at Rome they had spiritual insight though, right? You mean they weren't Spirit-filled? They may not even been Christians? then why do we borrow their ideas? Why do we lean on their work as if it means anything? Listen to what Isaiah 5.21 says. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Look out, saints. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw, and as dry grass sinks down in the flames, so their roots will decay, and their flowers will blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty and spurned the Holy One of Israel. How did God describe His judgment there? Tongues of fire. Do you think there in that context we're talking about a little thing that bounces between your teeth? Probably not, huh? What might a tongue of fire be? You ever seen fire that is raging and how it curls out in every direction and whips back and forth and stretches out and is constantly moving and changing? Tongues of fire licking up something speak of the way that the branches of fire reach out and strike. Reach out and strike. That's a little different image than a little flickering candle above someone's head, is it not? Tell me something about mighty rushing wind. What does that sound like? Have you ever been next to a building that is burning down? Have you ever been next to... Have you even played a video game where a flamethrower is on it? What does it sound like? Wind. Crackling, powerful wind. Where did the Hebrews get this imagery? What is Luke writing about? Why did he choose the words that he chose? Hmm. Fire always serves a dual purpose. In Isaiah... The fourth chapter. Y'all don't have to turn to these. I'm going to go quickly here. In that day, seven women will take hold of one man and will say, We will eat our own food and provide our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name and take away our disgrace. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors of Israel. Those who are left in Zion, who remain in Jerusalem, will be called holy, all who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem. The Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. If your mind is not flashing forward in time to a day when John the Baptist would stand upon the shores of the Jordan River and say his winnowing fork is in his hand. He will baptize you with the Spirit, and He will baptize you in fire. They saw the fire as always accomplishing two purposes. Good for those that were longing for it, that were waiting for it, that wanted the presence of God, and destruction for those that didn't. In fact, we hear a day called that day over and over and over. I'll get to those in a minute. Let me tell you some more fire. Obadiah 17. 1st chapter 17. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess it as its inheritance. The house of Jacob will be a fire. And the house of Joseph, a flame. Well, that's good for Jacob and Esau. I'm sorry, Jacob and Joseph, right? Look how it turns out for Esau. The house of Esau will be stubble. And they will be set on fire and consume it. There will be no survivors from the house of Esau. You remember that the Lord makes His messengers like flames? In fact, God is going to gather the nations of the earth into a unified march against Jerusalem and then set Jerusalem on fire with His presence and it will consume the enemies of God. That's prophesied over and over and over in the Bible. Zephaniah 1.18 Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of His jealousy, the whole world will be consumed. For He will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. I read that and stood back in shock. All who live on the earth? I love God for the progressive revelation. To Zephaniah, it looked like everybody on the earth got burned. But there is always a remnant who were looking forward to His fire, who were rejoicing at His presence. In Zephaniah 3, verse 8, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations to gather the kingdoms and to pour out My wrath on them, all of My fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of My jealous anger. Then I will purify the lips of the peoples that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him shoulder to shoulder. Find out that it's not everybody who gets burned but those who were not waiting for the Lord's testimony in fire. God answered Elijah by fire when He wanted to show the nations who was God. He answered Moses by fire. He answered David by fire. He answered Solomon by fire. In fact, the last book of the Old Testament, Older Testament, says, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All of the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble. And that day that is coming will set them on fire. When we sing, set me on fire, we don't mean to be set on fire like they will be set on fire. It's the most constructive and destructive force on the planet. The same fire that Zephaniah said would consume the whole earth, Zechariah says something different about. Zechariah 2, verse 3 then the angel who was speaking to me left, and another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run tell that young man. Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. The fire is coming to consume the enemies of God and coming to protect those chosen by God. That's a powerful thing constructive for us, destructive for them. Have you ever wondered why Joel says that the day of the Lord is both great and terrible? Peter on the day of Pentecost quotes Joel and says, the glorious day of the Lord. was glorious for Peter. But what is it if you reject God's Spirit? John the Baptist said, His winnowing fork is in His hands. The wheat He will gather into the barn. And the chaff? He will burn with unquenchable fire. That's a baptism in fire I don't want. Jesus said in Luke 12 that Judah read before, I came to, kindle, or to bring fire on the earth. I have a baptism to undergo first. How I wish it were already kindled. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring division. Jesus making a way for God's presence. Jesus making a way for us to be justified in God's presence, standing in God's presence, is a great thing for us. But what happens when you find yourself standing outside of it? Not such a great thing. In 2 Thessalonians, y'all turn to this when you ought to know it, but turn to this one. 2 Thessalonians 1, the 6th verse. Tell me when you're there. 2 Thessalonians 1, the 6th verse. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to those who are troubled and to us well. What is the subject at hand? God is just, which means there will be retribution for you. God is just, so He's going to pay back those who have troubled you. When will this happen? When will it happen that you will get your retribution? When will Psalm 58 be fulfilled where David cried out that the wicked would be slaughtered? This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with His powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the Gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. Somebody asked me on a Wednesday night here recently, is hell really fire? Or is hell simply the absence of the presence of God? I looked for the words eternal fire in the Bible. You will be shocked how many times Jesus uses the words eternal fire. He's coming to kindle a fire on the earth. It will burn up even the elements, Peter said. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken. The only thing that will stand is that which God built. Paul speaks of that in what you build too. I'll show you that before we end. How about this one? Actually, let me finish that Thessalonians. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of His power. On the day He comes to be glorified in His holy people and to be marveled at among all those who believe. This includes you because you believed our testimony. Some are destroyed at His coming and paid back what they've done while others are marveled at and glorified Hebrews 10 says if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of truth no sacrifice for sins is left but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God fire is good for some and bad for others Matthew 3 y'all turn there Matthew, first book in the Newer Testament. That means you've got it all memorized. It's only three chapters in, so you can probably sing it in your sleep. Matthew 3, verse 7. But when He saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where He was, baptizing, He said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not... (laughs) Boy, that's a lost topic. On Monday nights, Nick and I go to a Bible study. And one of the underlying currents is do you in fact have to have fruit that shows repentance? If you produce it, they say you're saved. If later you don't produce it, they say you never were saved. These leaders that John the Baptist is speaking to were considered adopted sons of God, anointed in authoritative positions. But if they act like snakes, they're snakes. It not matter whether they were adopted or not. Everybody left Israel, adopted sons of God. And how many made it into the promised land out of that group? Three total. No, actually two. Moses didn't even go. Yeah, how about that? But when He saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming and baptizing, He said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire." This sounds remarkably similar to John 15. Every branch in me that bears fruit will bear fruit. Every branch in me that bears no fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Sounds like there is fire coming, and the fire will divide those who have produced the fruit of the kingdom from those who did not produce the fruit of the kingdom. What is the fruit of the kingdom? It got me saved. It's Matthew seven twenty one. Not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter my kingdom. Only he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter my kingdom. The fruit of the kingdom is the will of God for your life. The eleventh verse said, "I will baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry." He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Be careful before you cry out for that baptism in fire. could be a wall of protection around you. could be the zeal of the Lord within you that you fan into flame. Or it could be the thing that consumes your life's work that was but stubble because it was not God's will. One of the most convicting testimonies I ever heard was of a man... Who spent his life in seminary and learning, and then in public servants service, who died and heard a thunderous voice from heaven, asking him to give an account for his life. He began to babble on about all of the things that he did, and the voice said, "Give an account of your life." So he began to babble on about all the things that he did, and this happened three times. And on the fourth time, the voice said. Which of those things did I tell you to do? That guy's life has dramatically changed. When the heartbeat came back, he had a new fire in him. In Acts, the second chapter, I'm going to read you just a couple verses. I had intended to read you the whole chapter and as usual, I'm long-winded. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. What, what do you do at Pentecost, by the way? You gather the fields into the barn. It's a harvest time feast. It's 40 days after the Feast of first fruits. Jesus raised. Now it's time to go get the rest that is in the barn. And how might we show God's acceptance upon these people? How might we show that God's Word is in them? How might we show that God is leading them. How might we show that they are becoming a city for God? All of the things that God's fire was said to dwell in in the Old Testament. Well, I can think of one way that every Jew would get it. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were seated or sitting. They saw what seemed to be, tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Peter goes on, the man who had been hiding in the upper room, to preach, to point to this very event and says, this is what Joel talked about when he said the Spirit of God wouldn't just be poured out in a tabernacle. It wouldn't just be poured out on Moses' altar. It wouldn't just be poured out on David's tabernacle. It wouldn't just be poured out in Solomon's temple. It will be poured out and hit all flesh. Peter says this is what this meant. They understood it because they had seen fire in this way. And so many believed that 3,000 were saved in a single setting. 3,000 were saved in a single setting. When he quotes Joel... In the 20th, 20th verse of chapter 2, he changes Joel's words. I guess if you're an apostle, you have a chance to do that. Joel said it would be a dreadful day. From Joel's perspective, it was dreadful because he was looking at the horrible, destructive force of the fire that would be coming upon the earth. But from Peter's perspective, he could see it as nothing but glorious. The fire that destroys one protects another. Pick up in verse 29. Verse 33, rather. I know we're running long here. Exalted to the right hands of God, He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has now poured out what you see and hear. The visible representation of the Spirit of God in the fire reminded them of all of the times that they had heard the stories, all of the books that they had memorized growing up, so that they should have seen it as nothing other than God. And yet today, it remains the most controversial subject in the church. God announced it in a way that was unmistakable. And today, it remains the most controversial subject in the church. God's fire has been dividing since the beginning, and it will divide till the end. Jesus said, I I wish that the fire would come upon the earth. I wish it was already kindled. There's something I have to do first. Well, He did His work. The fire is being kindled. How long before it is poured out upon the whole earth? It's not something that I know. But here is something that I do know. 1 Corinthians 3.10 says this. This is one you should turn to if you've got your Bible open. 1 Corinthians 3.10. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds for no one can lay a foundation other than the one that was already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward, reward, <laughs> reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. The fire that has begun in you, the fire of God's Word, raging inside of you, the power to witness, the power of the presence of God should be compelling you to build with the right materials. And there's a day when the fullness of His presence will show up with His King. He will fill His people in every way. And the only thing that will survive that inferno is what you did for Him. Isn't it funny that he ended that little passage with, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? Think maybe he was reminding them about that fire? Hebrews 12 is the place we're closing. Hebrews 12, verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom, who is that kingdom promised to? Israel. And now by the grace of God. You want to talk about a gospel of grace? By the grace of God, you who didn't labor for it are being included in it. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom, we're not going to a kingdom, we're not flying away, we are receiving a kingdom. If I pitch you my Bible, you receive it, right? If you leave where you are and come over here and get it, that's something entirely different, isn't it? We are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and all. For our God is a consuming fire. Those are not just neat lyrics to a song. God is a consuming fire. He showed up in a powerful way with the most constructive and destructive force on the planet as His representation for a reason. He will build you up beyond belief, fueling you with His fire that needs no outside sources. Or He will burn you with an unquenchable fire so that there is nothing left. And the thing that determines it is what you do and do not do for Him. Since our God's a consuming fire, I'm going to do everything I can to leave a legacy that will last and that will survive the fire. And I encourage you to do the same. Stand up, let's pray.